E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Elena Pantaleoni of Listopa and Emilia on the show. Hello, how are you? Very nice to be here. Thank you. You own Listopa, which is a property that your father purchased, but the history of that property goes quite back a ways and that the gentleman at Geno put it together in the 19th century. Yes. My parents bought the estate in 1973. I joined the estate in 1991, but the, um, the beginning of Listopa goes back to the end of 19th century. So Giancarlo Ageno was the founder of the estate. He was a lawyer from Genova. And um, as much as we know, he was very passionate and fond of um, agriculture. So it was his choice to go there. He put together the estate and he started to make wine. He uh, lived until 1947. And we were in um, touch with our nephew, so we, we could read some um, things that he wrote. And so he wrote uh, all the things he was doing, making the wine. And at that time, uh, making long-aging wine, it was really rare. And um, maybe because he was from Genova, he had some relations with uh, France because he planted many French varieties. So when my father bought the estate... And he was a printer. My grandfather was a printer, too. At the beginning, he didn't know what to do with all those different grapes. So there were many, like uh, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Carmener, Merlot, and all white varieties, such as Marsan, Sauvignon, Tokai, Pinot Gris, and then some Brachetto, too, and some Moscato, too. <laughs> Uh, very few, Barbera, Croatina, and Malvasia, mainly those international varieties. So not the varieties that are often grown in that area today, but more of the French varieties. Yeah. So it's a kind of uh, strange uh, history for the area and for the time. So he was really forwarded, I think. And so... We tried to keep this uh, identity of La Stoppa because they were um, wines really related to the place. It's warm, my place. There is clay. And so long-aging wines made and make more sense than make uh, the refermented in bottle or the frizzante that is usually the most traditional wines of the area. 
So you're in the Emilia, which is the area where Lambrusco is produced. And what you're saying is the part of the Emilia where you are, which is Piacenza, it's not really suitable for that kind of production. Piacenza and Bologna are the only provinces of Emilia where it's not allowed to make Lambrusco. So Lambrusco is made just in Parma, Reggio Emilia, and Modena. My area, actually, there are four main valleys, and the two external valleys are more suitable to make frizzante wines because the soil is different, they are deeper soil, the production is a little higher. So I would say that uh, now, like, 70, 75% of the wines are sparkling, but mostly it's also typical. It's not a tradition, but it's typical, related to our food also, because Emilia is known for being a region of very rich food, mainly butter or stuffed pasta and all these kind of things. We are very close to Lombardy, Oltre Papavese, and Piedmont. So the lowest part of Piedmont, Colli Tortonesi, Oltre Papavesi area, and Colli Piacentini, even if they are three different regions, could be only one wine region. We have the same blend, so Barbera and Croatina. For whites, there are differences, because in Piedmont they have Timorasso, uh, in Oltre Po they have mainly Riesling, Italico, and we have Malvasia, Ortrugo, and Trebbiano. But if I were to think about someone like Walter Massa, who makes wine in the Pimante, in the Colli Tortonesi, he makes Croatina and Barbera. Yes, exactly. Because people think, uh, especially abroad, think that uh, Emilia no, is, uh, is much further away than Piedmont. Actually, in Italy, most of the times our wines on the wine lists are on the Lombardy section, because most of the people in Italy think that Piacenza is uh, in Lombardy, is not in Emilia. The town is on the river, on the Po River. You cross the river and you are already in Lombardy. And uh, my references, uh, talking about wine, are for sure more uh, like Lino Maga or Walter Massa and not uh, my friends from La Brusco area. Because you told me once if I wanted to understand some of your red, someone to think about would be Lino Magna at Barbara Carlo. Yeah, yes, because... Um, Unfortunately, again, Oltre Papavese is not known for quality wines. For many years, until uh, I would say 20 years ago, it was one of the main regions to produce uh, spumante in Italy. So they planted a lot of Pinot Noir, vinified in white. But uh, the real potential of that area, Lino Maga did it uh, like 60 years ago. But I don't know why sometimes happens like that, that uh, no one really followed Lino Maga ideas. But that's really, I, I think, the real identity of that area, much more than Pinot Noir vinified in white. And um, for him also, the wines uh, in the past, the good wines were the ones that uh, had some sparkling. So he used to bottle the wine sweet and then wait till they they are uh, sparkling now that the weather has changed the climate has changed most of his uh, vintages are dry and not sparkling anymore and they are very and this is quite similar to macchiona style which is my uh, most representative red very close because many many times i've opened up a bottle of barbacarlo and found a lot of bubbles 
Oh yeah, yeah. In the past, uh, yes, yeah. And for him, is uh, is that's the good Barbacarlo. Because <laughs> there is a history of vivace in Italy, like a phrase of vivace, or. But in the past, uh, it was also um, a way to protect the wine instead of SO2 to put uh, CO2. So that was the normal way to protect the wine. So it is interesting because the gentleman who started the property, Listopa, in the 19th century, he was clearly looking to French models, Bordeaux grape varieties, and he probably saw that there was a lot of clay where Listopa is, and he looked probably at the elevation, and he was trying to do like a Pomerol-style wine. Yes, we still have uh, an old uh, vineyard that was um, the old uh, vineyard that we always have named it uh, Bordeaux, Bordeaux Vecchio, which is actually Carmener, another grape that we have always named San Macer. San Macer is a name of a village, I guess, close to Saint-Emilion. And another one that we don't even know which is um, the name, but is completely disappeared. So... Um, that was the character of Stoppa, the wine that we named Stoppa after the, the estate, and Merlot. Merlot, you can find Merlot also in all vineyards around Piacenza province. I think because Merlot is much more um, constant comparing to Bonarda, and so they use more Merlot because Bonarda, another thing, Bonar we call the wine Bonarda, but the grape is Croatina. So Croatina is very inconstant, so they put Merlot instead of uh, Croatina, even in the old um, vineyards. Cabernet Sauvignon is a more recent story. We didn't have Cabernet Sauvignon old from Ageno. My father planted in the uh, late 70s. And um, yeah, so I think he... Because he was from Genova. Genova, of course, there is the arbor. So for sure, the, he had relationship easier than in Genova than in Piacenza with uh, French people. And yeah, the reference was France because French have started earlier than we started to give value to wine. And It makes sense to me that if you were trying to have a blending partner with Croatina, that you would choose Merlot because Croatina is kind of rustic in tannins. And as you said, it doesn't give a consistent crop. And with Merlot, you have a more consistent fruit, yes. softer tannins. Yes. If you were going to try to put two grape varieties together, you could, I mean, it makes sense to me. Yes. And always uh, together with Barbera, that Barbera gives uh, this acidity because we are in a very warm area with clay mainly. If we don't work with, um, with Barbera, for us it's a, a treasure, Barbera, because it keeps the acidity and it's a very good balance no, between uh, the two varieties. It's been a, quite an evolution in between that gentleman at Geno planting all those French varieties and then now, because yes. you don't do a lot of French varieties now. No. So basically what happened was he died and then there was this period where it was just sort of attendees, sharecroppers taking care of it, right? Yes. Actually, in, uh, in our area, it's not like in Tuscany. So the, there weren't uh, really sharecroppers. But the, there was always a man called a fattore that was like a manager of the property that hired the people to work there. 
and then they could share the crops. Now, people were living on the property, and maybe they could uh, beanify a part of the wine. And so for um, more than 25 years, nobody of the family really was involved in the estate. So there weren't uh, any investments. They only maintained the property. So my father could buy it in 73. At the beginning, he just started to try to understand what he, he bought and what he wanted to do. And then another important thing is that in Piacenza, there is, um, I would say, maybe the first uh, university, uh, viticulture university, Catholic university, uh, where uh, Professor uh, Mario Fregoni was at that time. And also Attilio Scienza was there. Oh, really? Yeah. Because so, he's the famous ampelographer. Yes. So Attilio Scienza was um, an assistant of Mario Fregoni. So obviously my father, where did he go? He went there to have some consulting, not to suggest. So he started to plant new vineyards and he planted also Barbera, Croatina, but also Cabernet Sauvignon. We had Pinot Noir. And um, we loved Pinot Noir. We still love Pinot Noir. <laughs> and so we tried to make um, Pinot Noir for 10 years, from 87 to 97. Then we stopped. It's not really the, the suitable grape. So at the beginning, until I would say the end of the 70s, there were like trying, experimenting, planting things. And there were people from the university coming to make experiments there. And then my father asked another professor if he had someone, a young guy, to hire. And so Giulio, Giulio Armani, arrived. And uh, he started uh, constantly in 1980. And um, at that time, there, were, um, there was a, an old um, cantiniere, so a person who, who was in charge of the cellar. And he was old and he had his ideas. My father wasn't really on the same ideas. So he wanted to have someone new to do different things. And Giulio uh, always reminds how tough was at the beginning because uh, he was going in the cellar and he was saying things to do. And then he, he went, uh, I don't know, he was going in the vineyards and came back, nothing was done, no? So it was a tough period for him to get in and to, to gain the authority, no? To decide, to make the decisions. But then the things went better and better. He's your winemaker today and has been for a long time. Oh, yeah. So s since 1980. So I always say it's like my, my other brother is another son for my, for my parents. And, um, and then my father uh, passed away in uh, 91. So I, I joined the estate and um, I don't have any farming or agriculture uh, background. So um, you were working in a music shop. Yeah, I tried to study um, journalism. I studied languages in the, at college. And um, yeah, my, my passion is music and, and books, but I also wine. 
at that time I was young, I wanted to be independent, so I didn't want to work in, uh, with my family. So, um, but then I had to go back. And you had to go back because your dad died and then your mom moved. See, my mom uh, uh, stayed for a few years and then she moved uh, in Chile in 1995. So on one hand, that was good. She has been very generous because um, she told me, if I stay, you never grow up. You'll make mistake. I made mistake. There isn't just one way to manage an estate. So be confident. You'll, uh, you'll do it. And I said, ah, okay, I will try. And um, of course, Giulio was very helpful because um, gives uh, the continuity no? from one generation to the other. But the more and more I was working there, I was thinking that I, I needed to, I still need to give identity to my estate. I always ask myself why people should buy my wines and I, I sell almost 60% abroad. I'm not in a strong appellation area. You're not in like a well-known zone like Barolo or... Of course. So I sell La Stoppa. I don't sell nothing else than La Stoppa. And so I said the identity goes through the style of wine, of course, but also through the, the varieties. And there is so much to learn, so much to study and to promote about Barbera and Bonarda blend and Malvasia di Candia Aromatica. Why, why work on Cabernet Sauvignon or Sauvignon or Chardonnay or Pinot Noir that will be always a copy, uh, maybe a beautiful copy, but something that are, has already been made centuries ago. And so we call it in Italian, for example, the Cabernet Merlot, we call it uh, Taglio Bordolese. So Bordolese means from Bordeaux. So why I should do a copy? Why should I should make a Bordolese style, as you say, wine in Piacenza? So I think it's more challenging, but also a goal, uh, my goal is that uh, La Stoppa, there was much uh, before me, and I would like that stays also after me and Giulio. So in order to achieve this goal, I have to give identity to the wines, to the estate. And that's why I chose to take away all those international varieties and focus myself, my job, the wines on those local varieties. But the really interesting thing about that is that you did that in the mid-90s when everyone else was going the other way, right? So like in Italy in the mid-90s, it was the time for... Cabernet and Merlot, and you were ripping it out, even though, and you're also a fairly young person at that time with no experience running a winery. So, you know, it's an interesting thing to do, right? Like you take over and you're like, you know, these prestigious grape varieties that everyone in Italy is planning and that most of the world thinks are the top wine grapes in the world that make the best wines. I'm not going to make those. But it actually took more time to take out uh, Cabernet. Uh, Sauvignon. But uh, it was easy to me with uh, Chardonnay and Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. First of all, because they are not suitable for our area. Even if uh, you have to think Piacenza, Colli Piacentini uh, DOC has uh, 18 different wines, 
of course, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon, they are all DOC. <laughs> and you are right, there was a time that um, the government, they gave you more money if you were planting Chardonnay and would have given you less money if you were planting Malvasia. We planted Malvasia. Yeah, maybe we were uh, ahead, maybe. But uh, as I told you, always ask, no? Always ask myself why, why I should do like everybody does, no? Another thing is that uh, we, we drink a lot of wine. We have traveled to visit many of the wine regions, especially in France. And that helped me also, no? To... Um, to open up my mind, uh, and I can give you some examples. Uh, the first time I went to Jura, for example, uh, oxidation is considered uh, a defect. Um, I went there, and it's so close to Bourgogne, no? to, um, I mean, to Montrachet. And I asked a person, a producer, no? why uh, you don't do Chardonnay like they say, ouye, no? And he looked at me like I'm a stupid person and uh, answered me, but we, I am so close to Bourgogne. They are making great wines and they are known all over the world. Why they should buy my wine from another region, the same wine? So I have to do distinctive things. Otherwise, nobody will buy my wine. So I went out from that uh, visit with Julian. They said, Hmm, you see, oxidation is considered a defect. If you change the perspective of things, no, the same thing is, can be seen like a strong point, not a weak point. No? Or another time, uh, I had an importer in, um, in the UK that he was very um, fond of um, Bourgogne. So we had the chance to visit some very good and important producers with him. And he was importing just Macchiona. And uh, it was uh, 96, maybe. So he was just bringing in one of your wines. Yes, Macchiona. And so once uh, we were in Bourgogne together, and I brought him a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, Colli Piacentini, DOC, 95. And um, he said, uh, mm, that's good. I said, why don't you import this wine? It's good. And he's Good price. And he said, how much does it cost? I said, 7,000 lire. And he said, hmm, interesting. Sorry, I can buy at the same price, more or less, a Sancerre. And obviously, it's much easier to sell a Sancerre than a Sauvignon from Cali Piacentini. And also that time, we went out from this visit with Julian. And I said, listen, where we want to go with a Sauvignon? And so, 95 was the last vintage of Sauvignon Blanc. I think that uh, I learned uh, traveling, I learned uh, asking things and listening to the, the answers <laughs> and asking myself why do things is more than how or before how, why do things. But you also had a perspective that was from the music world and you had realized how kind of more interesting music was sold when you worked in a record shop? See, that was another um, occasion to learn something. <laughs> so our shop is still there. 
but there are other people, of course, uh, taking care of the shop. They, it was like not a commercial shop. I worked there from 1988 until 91 uh, for four years. And uh, people came at this shop uh, to learn something new. And I imagine like a wine shop no, that doesn't sell any commercial wines. So people came in and they say, for example, I don't know anything about jazz. Let me introduce jazz that I can understand. Exactly like wine. No? If someone tells you, let me introduce to orange wines, for example. Maybe you can't start from the more complex one because otherwise the people are scared and they say, mm, I don't understand or I don't like. So there was like um, a path. No? So you, you maybe you start with the easiest jazz, uh, uh, more ballads or something like that. And you see that people, um, and they stayed there for all the afternoon with the headphones on. No? Exactly like when people... For example, in restaurants, no, sommelier, they tell me, you know, to sell your wines, take time because you have to explain them. You are there for, for that. This is, <laughs> this is your job. And people come to your place because you can let them know something that they don't know already. Otherwise, you could just give the list and there is no way, there is no reason why you are there, no? So the same as music, the people stay there all the afternoon, young guys, and we had to take care of them. That wasn't because you were there. They were there for the music. <laughs> no, they were there for the music. All the young guys hanging out oh. at the record shop. <laughs> more, more guys than girls, actually. I wonder why. <laughs> there were, no, okay. And so the attention they put in listening to the music was very different to the attention that you listen to music when you are making other things. In Italian, we say musica di sottofondo. I don't know if in English makes sense, say background music. Uh, the same is for wine. No? Sometimes people, they complained about my wine because um, they said that they were too, they have too much personality. And people in their places, maybe, they wanted to drink wine, just water. And they said, it's not a complaint. It's not something that makes me sad. Maybe this is not the wine for your clients, for your place. Again, I have a, a relatively small estate in an unknown area. Um, I don't like to do things, uh, strange things, because, um, because of that. Not just because I like to be strange. No, it's not that. I'm a very calm person. I'm not a revolutionary person. I think that my place and Giulio, with the help of Giulio, I understood that my place has a potential to make a, a specific type of wine. I have the responsibility also to try to express in the bottle all the potential of my place. This means that my market is maybe smaller than than, uh, I don't know, than millions of bottles. Yeah, makes sense. I don't make millions of bottles. I'm not the Laura Pausini of, <laughs> of wine, no? So I don't have to, how do you say, I, I don't have to be pleased from everybody. You don't have to pander to the popular taste. No. And markets are so different. There isn't just one market. There are many different markets and Another job is to find the right market for my wines. 
what have been some of the keys to doing that? When you look for partners to work with your wines, what are things that over time you've realized that that's the answer? I think the people make the differences. Um, I was I was thinking the size of the importers, for example, could be a good point. But it's not the most important point because I have also big importers that have a, such a sensibility on wine and they have the resources to pay for good people to work with. So it's not a size, it's, uh, it's always how they think. For example, the it's like me. No? It's like um, they want to be on the market for generations. It's not just like a, a job for to gain money in a short time. This is not. This is not my job, and this is not also an importer or a distributor way of gaining a lot of money in, in a short time. There are other jobs that can be more interesting to do that. So, um, yeah, the people, the um, attitude that the people have to listen to us, the fact that they come, they want to come to visit us at the estate, the fact that they ask why we do such wines instead of asking how many days of skin contact or how much sulfites I add uh, each vintage. People that uh, chose to make this job and they do it with passion. I could see that being a big change for Julio, like working with a certain set of grape varieties of which, you know, they're well-known grape varieties and there's books you can read about how to deal with them. And then taking all those out <laughs> and planting some local varieties, which, I mean, I guess you could ask local people how they handle it, but that's uh, usually not something that winemakers do. They usually don't change, you know, that's like a cellist playing the saxophone. He has to learn a whole new set. Another thing, we always uh, made Macchiona. was a smaller production, but we have always had Barbera and Bonarda on the estate. For example, Pinot Noir, it was so hard to make Pinot Noir. I guess it's hard everywhere, but in our place it was really hard. Or like Sauvignon Blanc. If you want to force the place where you are and make wines because you want to make those wines, not because these wines are more suitable for the place, it's so hard. That means that you, you can't be so natural, first of all. You have to use much more technology, and it's hard. So, Macchiona, I'm not saying that uh, I don't want to simplify the things that we do. We try to, to think about a lot. Maybe we, we think more than we do, <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that um, if you understand where you are, um, nature gives you back the um, easiness of making things. But you have to accept, you have to be open. The nicest thing of Giulio is that he's really curious. He always learns something every day and he loves to do that. He's not, uh, sometimes people think that we are like integralists. We are not. We are so open. We like so much <laughs> to discover new things every day. So that's passion, competence, and open mind 
these are the, um, the top things of Giulio. And also open, open means also not to consider defects, things, characteristics of the wine that most of the people think are defects or problems. So I give you an example. For example, we harvest. We don't do any green harvest. We stopped. Yeah, in those years, in the 90s, everyone was taking away crops. No? And we did it, of course. We wanted to be fashion on some up to date and then we asked ourselves why do these things no why we work so hard and then we take out half of the production it's crazy no but anyway i was saying another thing so we harvest we mm, this them and put in a tank and i would say eight times out of 10, there is a, a stop in the fermentation because there is a lot of sugar. So the wine is uh, maybe with 20 grams of sugar residual and we put in wood. During the, the next spring, the wine starts to re-ferment and maybe it takes maybe two years to be dry. Of course, in those two years, volatile acidity raises. But this gives um, drinkability to the wine. And another thing, our soil is mainly clay, but is very poor of nitrogen and very rich of iron. So especially Barbera and Bonarda, maybe Malvasia less because it's very aromatic, so you don't have this the same perspective, they reduced a lot. But uh, it's not a question of giving more air. If you give more air, they are more reductive. So it's only time that um, um, let the wine uh, more stable and to open up. And, for example, Bretanomyces, those are the yeasts that um, let our wines um, ferment and be dry. For us, what we understood, what we learned, there aren't good yeasts and bad yeasts. All the yeasts are good. It's only a question of time. So now I'm releasing, for example, 2011, because it has been a warmer vintage, it's an easier wine. I just released 2009. I'm selling 2002, 2006, because those wines, after... The, all those years are, are great wines and can last forever. So we understood that um, stop, as you say, arresti di fermentazione, so fermentation stop, high volatile acidity, bretanomyces. These are not problems. These are the conditions that let us make those wines. We have to wait. Part of the, let's say, the vinification is time. So the guy who makes the accounts tell me, you have a lot of stock. You have to reduce your stock. I say, it's not a stock. This is part of the, of the work, part of the vinification. So it's a treasure that I have all those old bottles. But it's part of the aging of the wine in wood and in bottle afterwards.
So um, understood that, that the place is suitable to make those type of wines. So we could make only Macchiona, Ageno, which is our white on the skins, Trebbiolo, because um, is the um, easiest Macchiona and let us have a better selection for Macchiona in order not to uh, make a green harvest, for example. And Passito and Vigna del Volta. Those wines are really made by themselves. And if you understand where you are and uh, you follow the indications that your place give you, you can easily make natural wines. And then find clients for those type of wines that are not for everybody. So this is the way we work. It's not that important for us uh, if the fermentation is made in inox or concrete. For us, it's important to use wood because wood let the wine oxygenate in time, during years. And that's it. No? It took a lot of time to understand where we are. It took time also to be more confident of what we are doing because uh, there were years that weren't so easy like now. Now we are... Uh, it's a community now. Yeah. There's a lot of other people you can talk to who are similar minds. Yes, but um, I remember, uh, for example, at the end of the 90s or at the beginning of 2000, it was tough. It seemed like uh, we weren't able to make wine in, anymore. I was strange, no? And I said, how come? <laughs> how come that we were good and now our wines are not uh, appreciated, no? Like before. But this happened also for um, um, much more uh, famous uh, producers at that time. Uh, I was kind of worried because, um, you know, I have 30 hectares of vines, 28 of forest. It's not a family. When people ask me, it's a family business, I said, um, yes, but it's just me. I don't have a family. So I have to pay every month salaries. And, uh, and I don't want to be rich, but I don't want to be anxious every, <laughs> every month to pay my colleagues, my my workers. So um, anyway, even if it was hard, uh, we never came back on our ideas. We never did uh, big compromises. We do compromises every day, not just in wine in our life, no. But big compromises, no. We decided that that was it. Maybe this is my character. Giulio helped me, of course, to be strong on that, but also my character to be, uh, we say in Italian, avere le spalle forti, to have uh, strong shoulders. And I said, okay, I have to do it, I have to do it. And then I have to say also, I've seen Mondovino in 2005, and that was uh, like a breath of... Uh, Wow, yes, I'm not by myself. Uh, because really at that time, from, from that time to now, everything has changed, everything. So my distributor in Italy started in maybe 2002, 2004. He started to import mainly French wines and then with Italian wines. But 
talking about natural wines was really weird at that time. And I, I don't like to talk about, uh, I don't like to name my wines natural wines, even if I know that it's uh, useful not to, for the communication. But um, since I grew up with this type of wine, this style of wine, I think that this is wine. The others are industrial wines. But of course, in these years, to give a name, you know, because we need always to give a name to things like orange wine or natural wine. So I'm, uh, yes, I'm considered a natural wine producer. So um, I remember the first time we presented the Ageno, for example, our orange wine was 2003. We invited for lunch, like maybe 15 people from the area or nearby from Milan to introduce this wine. And when we served this wine, there was silence, but completely silence. And then one of them looked at us and said, are you crazy? Did you become crazy? And we said, uh, no, okay, forget it. Go on with Macchiona. And, and so everyone said, okay, okay, okay. And we, that was the first time and the, there were only 3,000 bottles. And, and we said, I think it's a good wine. I think it makes sense in our uh, region, in our area, with our grapes. We keep on doing it and someone will buy it. And um, so now we make like 15, 16,000 bottles of this wine and, and help to give us uh, an identity. But you know, at the beginning, but maybe still now, but uh, I remember one of the first articles in Italy about uh, Geno, and the journalist called it a biodynamic wine. And I said, hmm, okay. Then I, when I met him the next time, I told him, thank you for the, um, for the article, but you know, this is, we are not in biodynamic. He answered me, but you know, it's to let people understand the style of wine. And they said, uh, no, <laughs> biodynamic is something. This is a white with skin contact maceration. There, there is no, there is nothing, no, between. But that, that was the, the idea, no? Yeah, I know, it's to make people understand, make it easier, no? Uh, I said, oh my God. So, yes, and then... Triple A, no, the, the, our uh, distributor in Italy, we entered in this distribution. We found a lot of people, crazy people <laughs> like us, uh, and we felt ourselves uh, less lonely. That helped us also no, to, um, to be more confident that the things that we were doing were not so, so crazy, so out of mind. And... Uh, I think a lot of people have found you through the Ageno, not the other way around. I think they found mm. the Macchiona from really being into the Ageno. That's my guess. That's what happened for me. Yes, because uh, from abroad, for sure, uh, we still sell, uh, I would say, 80% of the Ageno abroad is the, is the contrary for Macchiona. So we sell a lot of Macchiona in Italy, and especially in my area, is a very well-known wine. Yeah, I think that Ageno is an easier wine comparing to Macchiona. Well, there's a certain kind of fruit with uh, Aromatica that it's appealing. 
like you eat a pear. Mm. You know, there's a certain juice to it mm. that, you know, is appealing. Yeah, that's that's the fortune to work with Malvasia di Candia Aromatica, which is the, the most cultivated white grape of our area, still very unknown. You know, in Italy we have, I guess, 17 different grapes, all called Malvasia. This is a specific type, very close to Moscato, but it has a thicker skin comparing to Moscato, a bigger um, grape, very resistant, very not too delicate. And that's why also we thought that was a, a great variety to macerate, to make a skin contact wine. So, yes, it's much more seductive. Not, and it's very recognizable comparing to other maybe white wines, say like orange wines. I also think it's a real mouthfeel wine. And I think it's a good use of clay to make a mouthfeel wine. It's easier to make a broad mouthfilling wine when you have a clay soil, I think. It seems to me, not being a winemaker. But you can see more clearly with you than with any other producer how it is that soil is important, I think, because your winemaker also has his own estate. He makes his own wine, and it's from the same area, but it, it's different wine because he's using sites that are higher up and that have less clay, and oh, yeah. he makes different wine from those, even though he's the same person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that's a, a case study in what soil types do. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. See, it's amazing because... Yeah, some people still think in these wines you feel Giulio's work. We say, what does it mean? No? A Genoa and Dinavolo are so different because of mainly because of the soil. You're right. We have mainly clay. He has mainly calcareous, a lot of rocks, stones, and the altitude, of course. Even the red wines, if you taste it blind, some people, competent people, would say, this is a wine from the south of Italy because you feel the sun. If you drink um, Julius wines, no, they are much more mineral. They are much thinner, lower in alcohol content. So a completely different style of wine, of course, made from the same person in the same place. Because he physically vinifies it in yeah. the same facility. Yeah. yeah. And then, yes, of course, we use uh, in Ageno, there is uh, like 80% of Malvasia now. And he uses uh, four different varieties in the same percentage. So less Malvasia. So it's much less aromatic. But yes, yes. Wine is always a question of uh, soil and, of course, climate and vintage, of course. No, Every vintage is different. So... And the other way that you, as an estate, are a really good example of that is that literally there was a over a decade track record of people trying to make grape varieties that didn't work there. And a big part of the reason they didn't work there was soil and climate. They wanted the wines to work. They wanted the wines to work because those were considered the great grape varieties of the world that make great wines, and they wanted to make great wine there, but it wasn't working yeah, but even you, you had the chance to taste some old vintages of Sauvignon or from Pinot Noir. By chance, maybe. <laughs> but um, some of those are, are, are great, were great wines. Maybe more the Cab than the Pinot, though, huh? <laughs> See, no, man. No, the Cabernet also is, is very good. Stoppa is a great wine. But um, 
but it doesn't make any sense to me to make it. And but for sure, you are right. I remember those years, um, even in Tuscany. You know, now you talk about Chianti or Sangiovese. You no, know, but all those super Tuscans were because was easier to compete with those wines instead of competing with a more uh, Italian uh, rustic uh, type of wine. No? This this is part of our culture, maybe. No French, the French people are not like us, in a good sense and in a bad sense. But I think uh, more and more we have to be proud of uh, our things. And to promote our things, now the times are easier, readier, more ready than before, for sure. But it's a question of um, dignity. It's a question of believe in what you do, believe on, and also to, to, to see your job in long term. I always had this, uh, this idea, no? I already seen that vineyards can last longer than me, so... I can't think in short term. And fashion, if you want to s- follow fashion, you are a vine grower. I mean, you can't be always fashionable because your, your vineyards don't change so quickly as fashion. No? So um, it's better to, to understand where you are, to do a few things, try to do uh, the best you can, and find the clients for, for those wines instead of copying things that, some others do. Well, maybe one day they'll copy you. Good. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were talking to those people, how do you make good Barbera? Like, what are the things about Barbera that are important when you grow it? The yields. I think that uh, one big point is to control the yields because Barbera is very productive. And to, to find the right place because Barbera needs sun to ripe but not too much sun because the skin so thin. It easily dehydrates. Yes. Like the liquid goes out. Yes. So we don't take out leaves. It's crazy for us to take out leaves. No. <laughs> they have to be warm but covered. And what about croatina? Like when you're working with that, how does it differ? Uh, croatina is more resistant as a thicker skin is the latest grape that we pick up, so late September or half September, it depends on the vintages. The only problem is that it's very unconstant, but yeah, and then of course we don't vinify them together, so they are separate, and then as uh, the fastest you put them together, the best is. So um, just after the maceration, the, the fermentation, we put them together. So um, it's a good combination. Do you find different parcels? Do you break it down on the estate into different sectors? We don't make any wine from single vineyard. It's always a selection of the grapes. So we go more than once in the same vineyard and pick up the grapes uh, following like an homogeneous quality. So the oldest vineyards or the upper part of the vineyards are uh, for Macchiona, the lowest part of the vineyards where there is a little bit more um, humidity or more production because the soil, no, the er- erosion. And those are bigger berries, so are more suitable to make Trebbiolo. When the grapes make it into the winery, what happens next? How do you approach it? All the fresh grapes are uh, de-stamped 
And then we use inox and concrete tanks to ferment and to macerate. We don't make any pichage. We don't punch down. We only pump over a few times. Mm, we don't have any problems with color, of course, working with these varieties. So we don't need that much. And for Trebbiolo, maybe two weeks, three weeks, it depends. And for Macchione and Barbera, maybe one month, 40 days. Depends on the quality of the grapes. Without temperature control, all the um, tanks ferment uh, spontaneously. And then when we take out the skins, sometimes we press them. Most of the times we don't. Or, and if we press them, what we call torchiato, we keep it apart because we don't need more tannins. We don't need more colors. So usually we don't. So you were speaking about reduction before, and you said that you don't feel it's helpful to give more air when it's reductive. You feel like it just takes time for it to go away. And when does that occur? When do you have that sensation? It's easy to recognize because it's more reductive in that sense. It's the reaction between uh, air and lack of uh, nitrogen. It's not that you make a ranking more that uh, it opens up, no? So. It's not that the question. It's a question that comes from the soil. So it's only time and uh, micro-oxygenation in wood that uh, helps these aromas to go away. And then there are also different types of reduction. It's not just one reduction. No? And of course, to me, what I learned uh, is that um, if I open a bottle and I, I feel this reduction, I'm interested in and say, hmm, could be interesting, no? And then you taste the wine. If the wine has structured, and you know that this wine is, has been made in a warm area with such soil, so everything makes sense, and it's not um, a defect for me. It's a characteristic of the place of the wine, and I know that this wine needs to be decanted, and everything goes away. Different is... Uh, if uh, there is a big reduction and then you find a wine, very weak wine, a very thin wine, and you know that this wine has been made in a cold area, in a cold vintage. So no, that doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, if I tell you all this I told you, and then I present you a wine that is an explosion of fruit, uh, light in alcohol, and you would look at me and say, what did you talk for one hour? There is no relation between what I understood of your place, what you were telling me, and the wine you are presenting. So for me, a great wine is the wine that you can recognize where it has been made, at least cold and warm. This is a great wine. And then the other point is my taste. No, I can say I like that or I don't. Very different is that uh, if you open a bottle and you taste wood. Sometimes I, I had tastings with other producers, no? and they, they were telling me, if I um, smell this reduction, I'm sorry, for me, it's like a, a wall. Right. I can't go further. That was going to be my next question, because I've encountered that set of winemakers too. Like I kind of lean towards what you're saying. 
but I've encountered people who really don't like it and want to get it out. It's kind of like the more dominant winemaking thing in Europe. Whereas in America, people would be like, whoa, reduction. That's a surprise. Like it (laughs) seems to me, but in Europe it happens so often and they feel like it's something they need to remove. Yes. I don't think it's right. I totally disagree with these producers. They tell me, for me, it's like a wall because something that I don't like and I can't go further. And I say, this is your problem. It's not my problem because you lose a lot of things. No, It's like if you see a person and you don't want to know this person because you don't like, uh, I don't know, big ear. So you're see, talking about me right now. You actually like <laughs> you made a gesture towards me as you did that. That was amazing. No, it's cool. That's cool. So, so all the better to hear you with. <laughs> so maybe I, I lose the chance to let you know more because I don't like big ears. It's the same, no? And you lose all the all the pleasure of a wine, no? Different thing is when I open a bottle and the only smell is wood. This, this is not something that comes from nature. It's not coming from soil or weather or variety. This comes from a precise choice of the producer of using new oak because he thinks that new oak adds something to his wine. So I don't stop myself drinking, but um, of course this doesn't give me any emotion because this is um, the will of the producer. Reduction is a moment, can be a moment of the wine, can be a place, can be many things. And for example, all the wines that I've tasted uh, in the past from the um, southern part of France, for example, no? Languedoc, Roussillon, and now to see all those wines with carbonic maceration and you can't recognize if they are Beaujolais or Grenache or Mourvedre or Syrah, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm not, uh, I'm not available in order to drink natural wine, to drink those wines that are, have no any relation with the place where they are made. So for me, the first thing for making natural wine is to understand where you are and to express in the bottle your place. This is the first thing. To be natural, so you don't use yeast, you don't use sulfur, is a consequence of this goal for me. My goal is not to make wine without sulfites. My goal is, can you recognize my place in my bottles? You know, Joe Dresner used to say that one of the ideas about using a little sulfur is that you get it to taste more like it tastes in the winery in the bottle. Like when you taste out of cask or when you taste out of concrete, the kind of flavor taste that you get when you do that don't seem to translate into a bottle when mm. you use a lot of sulfur. Mm. It's a, it becomes tighter, it becomes more removed, it becomes something different. And so his feeling was if that seems so beautiful when you try it out of the large holder in the winery. If it seems to have a life to it, then try to keep that into the bottle. And um, I rarely hear people, I guess what I hear a lot is people who say, well, the defects cloud the terroir, but I rarely hear people say the sulfur clouds the terroir. But I see it 
both ways, <laughs> like at the same time. I'm sensitive to both sides of that argument. Sisima, you know, I don't use any ideology in making wine. To me, the most important thing is common sense and to be in the middle. I mean, I don't have uh, crusades to struggle for, no? So I, I try to make my best in my place with the things I have. That's it. And uh, I love wine. I drink a lot of wine. And um, I don't want to drink uh, or eat uh, bad or junk uh, wines or food because it's not good for my health. If I'm organic, it's because I live in the where I have the estate and my garden. Why put... Um, stupid chemical things in the in my garden or in my home that's it i think that i have a responsibility towards uh, nature towards environment so i don't use that much sulfites because i don't think i need if i need i put but always small amounts it's interesting in italy because i feel like more so than France, there's a history of having a somewhat oxidative, a little bit volatile, a little bit oranged fruit, bergamot kind of flavors in a wine that's seen as a traditional wine. And that's kind of an Italian palate that then in the 90s got really turned around to something else, which was the opposite, more on the fruit, more on the big concentration, less on the oxidation, no volatility. But that was such a rapid change, where in France, I don't feel like those more oxidative wines were still around during the more modern time. Like you didn't see a lot of those more rustic tannin wines. So for me, I, I sometimes wonder what is real Italian wine now? Because <laughs> really that oxidative thing, I think that comes out of World War II, lack of labor force, and then a lot of small domains started without a lot of knowledge expertise or just people to top up barrels. Or So when we think of those traditional wines, we're talking about the post-World War II era. And so we have a kind of a fixed notion of that. And then we have the 90s and the Super Tuscans, and we have that. But now we see a, a kind of natural wine that takes different forms in Italy, which is slower to develop than France, although there's quite a few now. But I wonder kind of what is Italian wine with those three things. I'm not really sure what it is. It's an interesting view that you have. Um, I hope that in the future or now or in, and in the future, there will be always more and more uh, the wine that is uh, not affected by World War II or... Uh, or American journalism that come and want more uh, structured wines. Uh, so I hope that uh, more and more there will be the sensibility of expressing in the bottle what is really the soil and the, and the climate. So I hope to see in the future more and more wines, uh, very different one to the other, according to the place. And um, of course, Italy has a very different story comparing to France because Italy has always been um, not a, a thing to take to the court, to the king, uh, no? so um, more farming, more uh, like a food, an alimento, part of our diet. No? So 
for sure, less uh, tension. No, I think that the the tradition is uh, a small farm with uh, cows, uh, with uh, vineyards, with uh, other things, and so the work of the wine, you could do it when you didn't have the animals to take care of. No, so it's true. Maybe not full barrels. Um, so I hope so. So I hope that um, the future will be that, no? Less uh, uh, influences from something aside of wine and place and climate. So what have the vintages been like over the last 20 years that you've been there? Very different. The last vintages, uh, this is another good point. No? There are so many differences now from before and very uh, dramatic differences between one vintage and the other that um, you have to be open. You have to change the way you have been used to to act for many years no? because it's changed. So uh, when I started, uh, the first vintage was 92, was awful. 92 was a lot of rain. And in those years, uh, we still picked the... Uh, Bonarda and Cabernet in October. Now I think it's uh, more than 10 years that we don't pick any grapes in October. So it's not a very rainy area, our area. Now is even less, very dry, drier and drier. Not much snow in the last two or three years. And very unstable, very, so 2014, very cold. We skipped 2008 because it was raining a lot between May and June. So different, very different. And it seems like you make an effort to hold things back until they're ready to drink. So I like old wines. I think that Italy, we have to, to keep those wines. This is our treasure. This is something that make the difference between the new world and the old world. I can afford it, even if my wines are not so expensive. The most important denomination, appellation in Italy, like Barolo, Barbaresco, Brunello, Amarone, among others, they keep these wines more because otherwise we, we, we go all towards this um, smell, uh, these aromas of fruit, and we lose all these uh, uh, aromas of terziari, no? So that make a wine uh, so emotional. When the wine is young, it's only fruit. It's like a fruit juice. Um, nice, better. No? But when it's old, it's, so, it's almost moving. And um, so I think I wanted to keep these wines, especially in the natural wine movement. No? A lot of people think that uh, only young wines are natural, especially in the United States, especially in new markets. No? I find these young people and say, oh, you're selling a 2006? I didn't think that uh, at that time natural wines were made. <laughs> so this is um, a dangerous way to promote our work. And um, so that's why I don't like carbonic maceration. And I don't like those 
maybe because I'm old and I, I like old wines and I like to be moved from wine. I like to be surprised. And so that's why I keep as much as I can my, my bottles. And I, I wish I would have still to sell uh, wines from the 80s, wine from the 90s, and unfortunately they're, they're gone. Well, I don't think you're that old. I think you're about halfway through your wine career because <laughs> you've done it for 20 years and you probably have another 20 years before you start to think about See, retiring. 26 now I've done already, 26 years. So when you think about what you'd like to accomplish in the next half of the wine career, what is that? What is it that you'd like to do? Since I have a big estate and I have space, I would like to have different uh, cultures, not just wine to have some animals, to grow some other things. I have wood uh, forest, so, and this is something very new for me because I, I don't have uh, farming in, on my background, so, and everything is kind of complicated in Italy because of the bureaucracy, so bureaucracy is very tough, but I would like to do that. And maybe I would like also to reduce the number of wines I make and try to focus more on on those four or five wines that um, I think that uh, they are more uh, interesting for my estate. Elena Pantaleoni would like to have multiple cultures and more focus at Listopa. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you, Levi, for your time. Elena Pantaleoni of Listopa in the Emilia of Italy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.